Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Kim and listeners. And oh. welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response oh, to the major developments in No, get <laughs> off there, Bill. It's Bill's, Bill's ghost has entered the studio. And wants to wish you a very good morning. That's exactly right. And uh, after the fierce weather events in Melbourne, I suppose everybody is uh, sighing a, a, a sigh of relief that uh, the weekend has come, except for all those people who are out there diligently earning a crust. On a Saturday. On a Saturday. Yes, that's right. And uh, today we have got lots of things to share with you. The first one is... Um, a uh, speech given by Ilyasa Shaba, who happens to be one of Malcolm X's six daughters, which is pretty interesting. She's the third, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, she is a um, she came to Australia recently in uh, early October, and interestingly enough, the visit was uh, auspiced by Variety, which is a children's charity. And um, the Islamic Council of Australia, because, of course, uh, Ilyas Shabazz is um, Muslim. And uh, so it was, a, uh, it was an open event. It was at the uh, Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, she's quite an inspiring person. So I've uh, uh, t- get taken the bit that uh, is halfway through her speech to share with everybody. Um, and at another time, I wouldn't mind playing the introduction that was given by uh, the Indigenous uh, woman who introduced because it was one of the most um, uh, happy uh, introductions. introductions in the sense that she felt like she was in uh, a, um, a community that understood and was supportive of their struggle in a way that you don't often get here in um you know, you, people will be asked to come and do Welcome to Country. They'll be asked to do this and they'll be asked to do that, and they do. Uh, but it's not as uh, it's not as a, as a handshake as you'd like. Do you know mm. what I mean? I, I don't know if you've when noticed that. When two comrades meet. Yeah. It's and, lovely. It's solidarity. Yeah, that's what it was like. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. So if I get a chance, I'd like to play that to people. Uh, but today we'll do the main act. Uh, and later, we're, we're a bit weary down at St- Stick Together. Uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> Stick Together. So that's how weary I am on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, uh, Kim and I went off to the Economic and Social Outlook Conference, which was kind of like a, not entirely, 
was a little bit like a Liberal Party love fest, but not entirely. It was very scary. Yeah, it was very interesting. We we took the bullet. We we went there for you, our listeners, and to understand, get a close. What is it? Look at the whites of their eyes and drink free coffee. Yes, yeah, right. But anyway, the, we've got two tasty pieces for you. One one is about from uh, you. you in- yeah, one is um, by the CEO of the Grattan Institute, um, John Daly, and we talk a little bit about when he's talking. The whole speech was on federation, but we talk. We took the bit that was about the GST, which is what everybody cares about. Yeah, that's right. That's the newsworthy part. And my bit is the one from uh, Mr Simon Cohen, who basically does a um, debater's argument about why uh, older Australians are just selfish and because they've uh, maintained house ownership. Anyway, it's a, And they have the temerity to go on living. Yeah. That's right. Anyway, it's fascinating. Um, it's it's uh, it's like it, you require a, a thing at the beginning saying uh, uh, this this uh, program disowns the all, all the um, uh, things that are being uh, expressed in this particular argument. But I warning: this will freeze warning. your blood. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really worth uh, hearing uh, what is one of the uh, bits and pieces that uh, will be coming towards us leading up to the next election. But uh, let's remind you about something that uh, uh, Dennis from Stick Together was so good to remind us all about. Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are at it again, and they're still using Islamophobia to divide us. Next, they'll blame Unionists, First Nations people, women, LGBTIQA people, people of colour, the list goes on. They've organised another rally to promote their hate speech and we're going to stop them. Rally on Sunday, November 22nd to remind these thugs that they'll always lose in Melbourne. For more information and to get details on the rally, text subscribe to 0422 726 843. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. Workers United, never be defeated. Workers United, we'll overcome. Oh, I'm sorry, I was on the phone. Yeah, we're, we're having a few technical difficulties here, but that's okay. Greg, our uh, wonder technician, is onto the case. Uh, but I can't even tell you people out there who are listening on your. Uh, your uh, radio sets uh, that uh, the reception's uh, got a problem, but streaming's okay. So we're pressing on, aren't we, Kim? Yes. That's right. So we'll get on with uh, what we were spo- supposedly talking about, which was uh, um, Ilyasa Shabar, who really, I have to say, needs no introduction. I recall watching my mother working in the cause of human rights and women's rights in particular. I remember her participating in the International Women's Conference that was held in Beijing, China, shortly before she passed away. When I was at my lowest, writing my first book, Growing Up X, afforded me an opportunity to reflect on her life as a source of inspiration and empowerment. My mother was just a young woman in her 20s when she witnessed the political assassination of her husband. One week prior, on Valentine's Day, a Molotov cocktail was thrown into the nursery of her home, which is a bomb, where my sisters and I slept as babies. 
When my father was killed, my mother was left traumatized, frightened, and alone. She was a young woman with four babies and pregnant with my youngest sisters, the twins. I've often asked myself, with six babies, widowed, and the wife of Malcolm X, the wife of a man who challenged a government that had been historically unjust to its own people, how was this young woman, Sister Betty Shabazz, able to overcome such a tragic loss with so many obstacles, yet still raise six daughters and still dedicate her life to giving back to others and still earn a master's degree and get into her car once a week to drive four hours from our home in New York to Massachusetts and earn a PhD? How? Sister Betty never accepted no or I can't as an answer for herself. My mother survived and thrived because of her faith in God and because she knew the importance of self-respect, self-esteem, and the understanding of history to empower her. History and education reinforced her capabilities, and she raised six girls with the knowledge of our history and religion as a means to develop a healthy identity, self-respect, and with an understanding of our obligation to others. My father, Malcolm X, was a young man when he burst onto the scene of the human rights struggle. In the 12 short years immediately preceding his assassination, Malcolm X rose to the defense of African Americans brutalized by discrimination. He challenged white supremacy and racial injustice. He redefined the American civil rights movement to include a human rights agenda for all. And he worked tirelessly to unite Africa and the diaspora toward a singular international struggle for freedom and independence. So let's put Malcolm in context. The years 1952 to 1965 marked the height of the civil rights movement. The singer Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit, filtered the airwaves. The strange fruit to which she referred were countless lynched African-American corpses dangling on tree limbs throughout the South, blowing in the wind. Public lynching were termed picnics, where gangs of white supremacist groups terrorized helpless young men and women as their children watched the trauma and torture of their black parents, siblings, spouses, and friends. Feeling ashamed of their African identity as if their lives were worthless. A 14-year-old African-American boy named Emmett Till, beaten to death by adult white men who didn't understand history. They didn't understand true brotherhood or the concept of humanity, freedom, justice, and liberty for all. Four little African-American girls were killed in a church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. Civil rights leader Megger Evers gunned down in front of his family in Mississippi because of his commitment to ending divides and seeking to integrate public facilities. Miss Fannie Lou Hamer, 
a young Mississippi sharecropper who was denied opportunity for a quality lifestyle and a quality education. She worked on the fields of a Mississippi plantation. With all the obstacles upon her, she persisted and persevered to ensure voting rights for her people. She was bludgeoned by inmates with billy clubs at the direction of the local sheriff. The savagery and degradation were intentional. She later wrote that her, her entire body went numb and as her dress began to rise, revealing her undergarment during this beating, that she would muster enough strength to pull her dress down, that the sheriff would then himself pull her entire dress above her head and continue her beating with added obvious and intended humiliation. And yet in spite of all the challenges against her, she persevered for all of us. Goodwin, Schirmer, and Cheney, two young Jewish and one young African-American man fought against injustice, and each one of them were killed by white supremacists. And then there were the images of government officials unleashing the fire hoses and dogs on peaceful, nonviolent, unarmed citizens who dared to protest. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what happens when we don't understand that when we hate another, in actuality, we hate and diminish ourselves. And this is the context in which Malcolm X, just in his 20s, stepped forward and stood up for all of us. Malcolm X challenged those who perpetrated these acts of political violence against its own citizens. He sought to end the devastation of human and natural resources caused by war and unequal distribution of the world's wealth. He accepted the mantle of leadership in the human rights struggle because he understood the oneness of man, that no matter where we're from in this world, that each and every one of us are brothers and sisters under the fatherhood of God. Men of my father's age tell me the beauty of Malcolm was that he gave them the gift of manhood. For the very first time in their lives, they heard the truth of who they were as men, as men of African ancestry. Malcolm taught them the truth, that our history did not begin in slavery, but that our ancestors, refined and industrious African men and women, were the architects of great civilizations whose monuments are being resurrected even until this day that our ancestors built those phenomenal pyramids, cities, and ships that archaeologists continue to uncover, that these refined and industrious African men and women were priests, scientists, physicists, astrologists, warriors, farmers, musicians, dancers, artists, poets, that they were not slaves, but that they were mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, neighbors, and friends. And even though government officials unleashed all the powers of its enforcement agencies against him, Malcolm stood tall to restore our identities, to help us understand that long before there was a Harvard or a Yale, for example, that there was the University of Timbuktu 
where black African scholars conferred degrees to citizens of the world. The place where the first phenomenal libraries were erected. History must not be one-sided. All of our young people must know that they too are a part of history. That they too have ancestors who contributed quite significantly to world history. That the continent boasted thriving civilizations with colorful cities, universities, chapels, monuments, and obelisks of 78-foot-high granite structures weighing in excess of 200 tons, a landscape built by black African people prior to the transatlantic slave trade. You heard that I was a project advisor for the award-winning Prince Among Slaves documentary. Prince Abdurrahman was one of the most famous Africans captured in the history of the slave trade. And he recounted his observation of this new land. He said that the United States was by no means comparable to the land in Africa from where he was kidnapped. In the 1700s, this great prince indicated that the United States was underdeveloped, that it was a pagan society, that the homes were poorly constructed by comparison to the structures built in Africa, he said that most Africans spoke five to seven languages, that most Africans were Muslims, Thri thriving cultures were based upon universal spirit and intellect, God and scholarship, morale and wisdom. And so we must honor them ourselves. They too are our founding forefathers and foremothers. And I believe that this is how we construct and encourage a legacy of our own with intellect and morality. But we have to teach our children ourselves. We have to take that foot and step forward ourselves. I pray that we will be fortified with the understanding that knowledge of accurate historical information prepares us for leadership in our homes, it prepares us for leadership in our communities and around the world. It fosters self-respect and then respect for others. It instills in us strength, compassion, and the ability to see right from wrong. It reminds us of who we are at our core and all of what we can accomplish to be or not to be. We must ensure that when history is taught, we adults, include the full contribution of all with integrity and honesty as the leaders of our society and new world, as the fathers and mothers of our next generation of children, sitting back and waiting for someone else to do for us is no longer an option. We must do it ourselves. If my father could do it, certainly you can do it. When my father said education is our passport to the future and that tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today, we must study what he said, come together with like minds, plan, strategize, organize, execute. You just have to do it. Accurate historical facts lead to a clear understanding that we cannot suppress another without subjugating ourselves 
that we cannot come to the aid of another without helping ourselves, if we do not know history in its entirety, then our education is incomplete and we and all the children following will continue to suffer the disorder of detachment, separation from history, disconnection from culture, rejection of heritage, and very likely a life without true passion, determination, and purpose. We must truly prepare future leaders to answer the call to leadership, to give 110%, to prepare themselves so that they want to fulfill their life's purpose. We must commit ourselves to building strong, safe, and respectable communities ourselves. Young men must protect and guide their women when applicable, and women will understand their role in nation building so that they can demonstrate to the world that they too are the sons and daughters of promise. And we will stand tall, gleaming with pride with this generation of leaders whom we are preparing to take their place in history and define a legacy of their own. Let us stand to honor those who contributed something back to history and in fact lived purpose-driven lives. Let us stand to honor those who before Malcolm stood up against the transatlantic and Arab slave trades, the largest forced migration of a people in the history of mankind. We will stand worthy to honor the Congolese Queen Nzinga, who was the greatest military strategist in the year of the 1600s that ever confronted the armed forces of Portugal against Angola. Her aim was the total destruction of the slave trade. We will stand together worthy to say thank you to Kwame Nkrumah, Patrice Lumumba, Stephen Biko, and Nelson Mandela. We will stand together worthy to honor Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who as African revolutionary generals and their brothers and sisters in bondage took a stance in the 1800s and overthrew their oppressors and claimed their freedom and land in Haiti. We will stand together to honor Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Denmark Vesey, Nat Turner, W.B. Dubois, Solomon Northup, David Walker, Fannie Lou Hamer, all of whom challenged injustice. We will stand worthy with the great historians, Carter G. Woodson, John Henrik Clark, Dr. Sheikh Antediop, J.A. Rogers. Let us stand worthy and honor the parents of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and all the nameless past laborers across the world, including the indigenous people from right here in Australia, so that we could be here today to follow in their footsteps of principle and service. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. And as we pay tribute to our own transformational power of leadership, may each one of you emulate that wisdom, courage, and purpose of our great ancestors to produce the best in yourselves that mankind can offer. And in that manner, our lives will not be in vain. We will honor ourselves and we will honor this new generation 
as we set examples of truth and leadership, just as those who labored before us. And I promise you that your blessings will reign forever. Inshallah. Thank you very much. Sricia had uh, an interesting visit last uh, weekend. Yes, a mild brush with uh, some fascists and racists. That's right. They did a tour of uh, the area. They went off to the, um, what was it, the uh, anarchist uh, clubhouse? Yes. Yes, we, that's right. And we should mention to people that uh, the anarchist uh, clubhouse uh, response is to have an open day on uh, Sunday, tomorrow. I think it starts at 10, so if you're interested and you're up near uh, uh, George's Road, uh, you should drop in and uh, say hello uh, and be part of the solidarity pushback from the UPF. Uh, And also you could obviously go to the rally. Yes, because after they were um, disappointed that they didn't get what they wanted and the anarchists kicked them out, they came to 3CR and did a bit of a tour, video tour. Yeah, which they put up on their website, which is not considered to be threatening, but is a bit uh, disturbing. And pretty lame. Yeah. Uh, so 3CR's not intimidated, so we're encouraging everyone to come down to the rally on November 22nd, and um, which to show them that we're not intimidated and that when you intimidate a community radio station, you get community. That's exactly right. That's exactly what you should be realising. Very soon, coming up next, is uh, one of our regulars, and that's uh, Marcus Harrington. Now, Marcus, you've actually got up out of bed today and come in. Uh, Yeah, here here live for a change, so thanks, Annie, and thanks, Kim, for having me. So, yeah, here live on double time, I can take it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, But we'll remind... (laughs) We have to pay you, do we? (laughs) (laughs) And who are you going to speak to today? Uh... Coming up on Rank and File Radio is the Victorian leader of the United Firefighters Union, Peter Marshall. He's going to report back on the negotiations with the government that have uh, gone on for over two years now. Yeah, Okay. Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are at it again, and they're still using Islamophobia to divide us. Next, they'll blame Unionists, First Nations people, women, LGBTIQA people, people of colour, the list goes on. They've organised another rally to promote their hate speech and we're going to stop them. Rally on Sunday, November 22nd to remind these thugs that they'll always lose in Melbourne. For more information and to get details on the rally, text subscribe to 0422 726 843. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. Workers United, never be defeated. Workers United, we'll overcome. And on Rank and File Radio this morning, uh, the Victorian Secretary of the United Firefighters Union, Peter Marshall, joins me on the line. Welcome to 3CR, Peter. Good morning, how are you? And you're the Victorian leader of the United Firefighters Union and currently Victoria's firefighters, members of your union, are in the midst of a drawn-out fight for better wages and conditions. There, yes, unfortunately, with Andrew's government, the Labor government, and uh, can I say that's extremely disappointment. So negotiations began with the former Liberal government and are still unresolved some more than two years later under the current 
Andrew's Labor government, as you've just mentioned. So aside from the wage increases, um, your members are seeking improved working conditions to an already dangerous occupation. Absolutely. Uh, Daniel Andrews promised firefighters so much, but most importantly, he promised 11 days before he became Premier, promised to respect and value the work they do. We've seen in the last couple of days an attempt to dirty up firefighters, to try and demonise them in the public arena by the Premier's uh, government, uh, some of his senior officials leaking documents to the Herald Sun that are just totally inaccurate and uh, are very much a historical document, uh, trying to uh, suggest to the public that firefighters are greedy. Now, that's one of the most disgraceful acts I've seen uh, even coming out of a Conservative government, the previous Libs, for the Labor government to actually engage in that sort of behaviour for they achieve their own self-end, can I say it's probably a very low point in time between uh, relations with the union uh, and uh, what's supposed to be a worker-friendly government. But most importantly, this EBA is not so much about wages. It's about safe systems of work about clauses that allow firefighters to have a say uh, in the type of equipment they end up having to utilise when they're in life-threatening situations. For example, they perform high-angle rescue. Now, that could be a 60-storey building where they have to hang off the end of a rope uh, with various uh, equipment. Uh, They want to make sure that that equipment is not going to fail. And if fire services are allowed to uh, embark upon their own uh, course of procurement without having uh, a consultation process, uh, they will always do it on the cheap. So they're one of the, that's one of the clauses, example, that previously was agreed that this minister had confirmed, confirmed uh, in relation to a border reference, uh, in relation to a code of conduct uh, and other matters, uh, which are now being ripped off the table. Uh, and what we're seeing here is uh, the Andrews government trying to put up a smokescreen uh, a, a very disingenuous one to say this is all about money, and it's not. OK, on Thursday of this week, just two days ago, um, you, the bargaining representatives again met with the state government uh, to resume discussions. What was the Minister uh, Jane Garrett's response to the members of your union? Well, when you say the government, what they did was send a very uh, junior bureaucrat into Fair Work Australia, along with the employers, uh, some of the same representatives that you've seen uh, under the previous Napfine government, uh, you know, like uh, the Andrews government's good on spin but very uh, little on substance, can I say. What they've done is try to refer this matter to Fair Work Australia so they can say it's not a matter that they have to worry about. It's uh, a matter between Fair Work Australia, the employer and the union. Uh, I can assure you, Daniel Andrews, it is not. Uh, and you have done uh, enormous damage to the morale of firefighters leaving into this fire season, uh, and that won't be forgotten. And the government's response and the stall and negotiations uh, must be a huge kick in the guts to your members, given all the campaigning work they've done on the ground um, to get the Andrews Labor government elected in last year's election, and all a kick in the guts to all the union members in Victoria. Well, we're about to run some TV ads and uh, radio ads in the not-too-distant future uh, that show uh, very graphically uh, what Mr Andrews promised firefighters. Uh, leading up to the state election, just 11 days before he became Premier. He addressed over uh, 1,100 firefighters, probably uh, well over that, at Collingwood Town Hall, 
and he made this uh, impassioned speech about uh, how they had not been respected and how when he, uh, if he formed government, that he would respect and value their work. Uh, and he made this impassionate uh, speech to the firefighters about how he admires the, uh, every time they go to sh- uh, uh, perform their shift work, how they put their lives on the, work, on the line, and how he would value that, his government would value that. I can tell you uh, their actions over the last week, and, I, and this document was leaked to the Herald Sun, uh, and they know it's not an accurate document, that's the Andrews government, by the Andrews government. Uh, you know, what sort of uh, so-called worker-friendly government does that sort of rubbish? Uh, but they'll pay dearly for that. OK, and uh, the Andrews government is making the issue, saying it's a, it's a money issue, making out the firefighters are uh, uh, greedy, asking for more money. Uh, what, what are the government offering? Well, the government uh, have made a number of offers along the way, but what was agreed uh, not so long ago uh, during negotiations, that wages would be dealt with as the last item, along with allowances. What was more important was to resolve those critical clauses in the EBA to go to the very heart of the safe systems of work for firefighters. That is, that when a firefighter goes to work, uh, they come home safely. Uh, it is an extremely dangerous job. Uh, those safe systems of work, uh, that uh, those clauses in the EBA that were agreed, which now Andrew's government has unagreed, uh, go to the very heart of whether firefighters uh, will be safe. Can I say also, it comes as a bit of a shock to us the other day, you heard much uh, being made by the Minister, Minister Garrett uh, and uh, the Andrews government about the extra 450 firefighters that they say they're going to deliver. On Fair Work uh, Commission the other day, they now say that uh, they want to alter that time frame. Uh, in, in reality, what they're doing is they're uh, reneging on agreed positions. Most importantly, they've misled the public. And the employers were calling on uh, a number of clauses to be removed from the agreement, such as uh, consultation clauses? Employers have been doing that uh, ever since the Liberal government. And I can tell you at the moment there's very little difference between the Andrews government and the previous government when it comes to firefighters. Uh, to be attacked so viciously uh, by the Premier's uh, media and spin doctors is absolute disgrace. Uh, those consultation clauses are essential to ensuring, as I said, uh, they make the difference as to whether a firefighter uh, will uh, go to work and come home safe. Without having those consultation clauses that allow firefighters to have a say in the type of equipment, for example, road accident rescue. Uh, you know, the uh, equipment they use to cut people out of vehicles, unfortunate enough to be in a motor vehicle accident, uh, if that fails halfway through, it's not only uh, critically dangerous to the trapped person, but it's also critically dangerous to the firefighter. Uh, if they fire, uh, even in the uh, pumps on the uh, fire trucks, uh, if you allow, uh, in particular, the CFA got a history of buying cheap equipment, uh, uh, the reality is that in the middle of a firefight, the last thing you want is your water supply to be uh, cut off or alternatively the pump to fail. The same with breathing apparatus. Uh, you know, all these things are so important. Uh, you know, Daniel Andrews promised a lot. Uh, but uh, he has been now exposed for no more than political rhetoric uh, to firefighters uh, for the sake of uh, gaining office. And it's not the first time you've been disillusioned with the ALP, Peter. It was, if we can go back to 2002 when yourself and Dean Moyle quit the ALP and floated the idea of forming a new Workers' Party. I mean, is this something that could be back on the table 
Oh, well, look, you know, you know election's three years away, but, uh, you know, payback's a beautiful thing. And um, uh, I think that, uh, uh, you know, Mr Andrews and his spin doctors at the moment may think they've had a, uh, a little bit of fun trying to dirty up firefighters, but uh, we've got long memories and uh, we'll remember going into the next election. Uh, but look, put all that aside, at the end of the day, what's most important is that your your listeners understand that the 60% pay increase that Daniel Andrews and Jane Garrett are banding around is rubbish, and they know it, and we'll be able to prove that in the most graphic way, uh, and uh, then they'll be exposed for uh, the misleading comments they've actually given to the public. Uh, but can I say this? Um, Firefighters do not deserve to be treated like this. This is a government that promised so much uh, and has delivered so little uh, and, in fact, has uh, embarked upon the same sort of attack uh, that they previously did under the Napfine government. You know, you mentioned about the ALP before with D-Mile in 2002. Well, let me say my experience in 1999-2001 with the now Treasurer, Tim Pallas, uh, the uh, then uh, Daniel Andrews was the Assistant Secretary of the ALP and the Brax government. Uh, you know, this has never been made public, but uh, certainly will be in the near future. Uh, their sort of duplicitous behaviour of making agreements for the sake of political expediency and then withdrawing them at the last moment, uh, you know, is breathtaking. Um, uh, you can see why people become disillusioned uh, with politicians. Branded on spin... And we could go on a weekend speaking about the uh, betrayal of Labor governments towards workers. Um, but the Andrews government ought to realise uh, the firefighters are the ones keeping all Victorians safe. So uh, thanks for joining us on Community Radio 3CR this morning, Peter. Well, listen, thanks for giving us the opportunity. But just one last comment. Uh, the dirty up that the attempt by uh, Daniel Andrews and Jane Garrett is the most disgraceful act uh, that we have seen. Uh, in a very long time, uh, and uh, it will be the public record will be corrected. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity. Thanks, Peter. Still fighting for what is ours. Climate action, climate justice. No man know the time nor the hour. In December, the governments of 190 countries arrive in Paris to discuss a new global agreement to stop dangerous climate change. Tricia joins their discussions with a series of special interviews and analysis starting Monday, November 16 till 28 and continuing into December from 8 a.m. till 8.30 a.m. weekdays and on Saturdays. The warnings have been issued. If we don't hold the line on emissions, climate change will be irreversible. Stay tuned. As 3CR breakfast programs join the global conversation. Yeah, well, as you were, uh, as you were saying uh, off air uh, about the um, UPF using the Eureka flag, tell us about it, uh, Marcus. Well, these uh, Nazi and fascist types who we've seen out on the street um, using the Eureka flag as their flag when. Uh, it's pretty outrageous, isn't it? Quite, I was really shocked. Quite clearly, the Eureka struggle was a struggle against racism. I mean, it was November 11th, um, 1854. That date's coming up very soon this week, but it was when uh, Raffaella Caboni, one of the leaders of the Eureka movement, he 
prior to taking the oath, he stood up and called all his diggers, uh, regardless of race, religion, nationality or colour, to um, salute the flag. So uh, these fascists are totally misled, um, using the Eureka flag as their flag when it was the Eureka fight was a fight against racism. I mean, if people want to know more about the Eureka, uh, tell, tell us about an event that's coming up there. Yeah, there's an event coming up on Wednesday, the 25th of November, 2015, uh, to commemorate and celebrate the 161st anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion, and that's at the Eureka Hotel. That's the corner of Victoria and Church Street, Richmond, kicking off at uh, 6.30pm, and there's a couple of guest speakers. Greg Barnes, who's a barrister, um, former president of the Australian Lawyers' Alliance and Republican Movement, He's going to speak on the Eureka spirit and how Australia has lost it. And the second speaker, an Indigenous man, uh, Terry Mason, he's going to be speaking about the Aboriginal peoples and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The 3CR every year does a cross from uh, Ballarat when they do the actual uh, morning ceremony. So uh, you should also keep tuned for uh, information about that particular event. That's... uh, uh, the wonderful Joe Toscano's uh, a lead in that uh, uh, 3CR event. As well, at the um, event on November 25th, um, there will be some union uh, representation. Kevin Bracken will also be speaking. Um, so hopefully, on I mean, it's a very important event for workers and no doubt the UPF would have actually been going around attacking the non-white people instead of actually paying any attention to the flag whatsoever, I bet. Well, no, that's interesting because there's a. The last time they had a rally at uh, uh, Federation Square, even though it was a quite a. Oh no, it was the first rally that they had at Federation Square. It was quite disturbing to see uh, such a a, um, a group of people that had uh, lined themselves around the UPF, which it wasn't. They weren't part of the UPF. They were part of the Reclaim Australia. But there were a lot of people there who came from um, varying backgrounds. It was quite clear that they uh, had come to live here. Um, as uh, immigrants, uh, like all of us, but I mean more recently. So there were people from uh, different backgrounds and, uh, you know, Cambodian or whatever, and, uh, you know, from some Asian countries and also from some other uh, countries where people uh, are generally black. So there were people there in their camp. So they're appealing to them from a um, fundamentalist Christian uh, grouping, I think. Uh, they're quite disturbing. All united by their bigotry. Um, there's also a anti-racist uh, meeting um, that's happening. It's the Socialist Alliance Day School, which is happening on November 7th. Today. 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 Yeah, today. Obviously, I don't that's know what I, date it is. Yeah, that's right. That's um, why I put it in front of your nose. Yes. <laughs> um, that's at 200 Arden Street, North Melbourne, and they'll be speaking about racism, colonialism and imperialism. So that's very relevant to what we've been discussing today. Exactly right. Um, and uh, I, we're coming up to one of our other regulars, which is, of course, Kevin Healy. And this is the week that was. He'll have a feast on uh, the various things that have been happening this week. We've got a variety of other things coming up later on. We're going to do a report on the uh, Economic and Social Outlook Conference, which uh, I must say that after being there for a while, I did actually feel um, a little... I was interested, 
like I said, you need to see the whites of your eyes. I, uh, you have to know your enemy. But um, it was definitely a, an experience. Just to remind you about the anti-fascist counter-rally that's coming on November the 22nd. Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are at it again, and they're still using Islamophobia to divide us. Next, they'll blame Unionists, First Nations people, women, LGBTIQA people, people of colour, the list goes on. They've organised another rally to promote their hate speech, and we're going to stop them. Rally on Sunday, November 22nd, to remind these thugs that they'll always lose in Melbourne. For more information and to get details on the rally, text subscribe to 0422 726 843. The Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is a 3CR supporter. Workers United, never be defeated. Workers United, will overcome. How to Make Trouble and Influence People 2016 Diary will be launched at Friends of the Earth Food Co-op on Friday, November the 13th between 6 and 8pm. Join us at 312 Smith Street for speeches, readings and performances of classic Australian protest songs by Laura McFarlane and Jimmy Ratt. A benefit for 3CR and the Lost Said Ross Biological Reserve, the diary features 366 radical dates in Australian history plus dozens of images and stories. Copies will be available on the night or can be ordered via freecr.org.au. How to Make Trouble and Influence People is a FreeCR supporter. Still fighting for what is ours. Climate action. Climate justice. In December, the governments of 190 countries arrive in Paris to discuss a new global agreement to stop dangerous climate change. Tricia joins their discussions with a series of special interviews and analysis, starting Monday, November 16 till 28, and continuing into December. From 8 a.m. till 8.30 a.m., weekdays and on Saturdays. The warnings have been issued. If we don't hold the line on emissions... Climate change will be irreversible. Sinking so low, sinking so low. Stay tuned as Tricia Breakfast Programs join the global conversation. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when, when we find someone whose intelligence so overwhelms us, it's difficult to let a week go by without paying a tribute to her, his latest contribution to the wealth of human knowledge. And last week we recall that someone, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, really put Amnesty International in its place after it had been slightly critical of Troubler Aussie's concentration camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats. These people... Our hero raised the level of debate as the machinery of his great mind ground into action have an ideological opposition to what we are doing. Well, for this week's chapter, Pete kept logic running riot as he toured Syrian refugee camps to handpick the beneficiaries of our international largesse. This puts our critics in their place. 
This shows that by being cruel, we can be kind. Now, I'll paraphrase him a bit, but that's actually what he said. And after meeting real human beings, fleeing the consequences of our clinging to the coattails of our great protector and very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, invasions, after meeting and displaying his love for dear little children, Pete said, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Well, he meant tent or shanty or something, but it's understandable. He probably gave them a copy of our policy. So having seen firsthand the human tragedy we have created, you'll now settle the Syrian refugees and perhaps other refugees, Pete, on Nauru and Manus in true blue Aussie. We will not encourage the people smugglers. We will not reward no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people who could have stayed where they were and now benefited from our international largesse. You have to be kind to be cruel. Oh, no, hang on. Uh, you have to be, uh, oh, you know. Uh, so you were deeply moved by your visit? Deeply. Oh, I've got a, got a feeling he's going to get a regular gig on the week that was. The mainstream media, and I have to admit some guilt in this area myself, have been swamping us with horses. That bit I don't mind, but more so with what the filthy rich and the D-grade celebrities clinging to the filthy rich have been wearing and eating in their come in, come in and display your wealth or, or your youthful attraction while it lasts, sponsors very expensive hospitality, which obviously pays off for the other 51 weeks or they wouldn't dish out their form of largesse. But on the horse's side, and I, I want to thank the television channel for breaking its coverage every now and then to show a horse or two. Well, that's a bit facetious because there is now a dedicated channel which does show the horses. On the can't see what the fuss is all about. A friend and I have followed women riders for years, aware their strike rate vis-a-vis -vis the number of rides they get leaves the blokes for dead. I think it's in the hands, the feel the horse gets through the hands, but the fuss. There's been 28 races so far this week and Michelle has won only one, a handicap for old stayers. Well, she's only had a couple of rides and Thursday, so-called Ladies' Day, with the feature for three-year-old fillies, women riders to the fore, no doubt. Well, in that race, the number of women riders? Yes, you got it exactly, naught. But how dare Michelle suggest there's sexism, chauvinism? I raise this to divert from the normal week that was and tell a delightful little story, or I found it delightful at the time. A few years ago at a small bush meeting, well, the Matoa Cup, it's a great weekend. The pub's now closed, I believe, but that Friday night it was the social centre of True Blue Aussie. Anyway, race one, eight starters, two women riders, one a young woman called Kate Walters, dead quite young. She, she since had a kid, but she's back riding again in that region. And those who know anything about racing know jockeys must treat stewards like they're gods. Bow, scrape... Mr. This, Sir, That, Mr. Sir, 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 never answer back, never, never answer back. And at those meetings, jockeys mounted, wandered around the mounting yard a bit and straggled out to the barrier. But this officious steward yelled, Get them in order, boys! See, he is Sir, they're boys. And like a flash, Kate riding past him yelled, And girls! 
And he was so taken aback that a jockey would dare answer back. He started, oh, oh, and you, Kate. And again she yelled, and there's Nikita too. As far as I know, she was never charged with bringing the industry into disrepute, but she could have been. And I, and I thought, how delightful to hear a gutsy young woman standing up against chauvinism. And by the way, Nikita won the race. There was some suggestion Wednesday Michelle might be charged with bringing the industry into disrepute because young women don't tell their male colleagues on international television to get stuffed. Well, until Tuesday. If they had charged, we probably could have charged the stewards with the same offence. I mentioned my friend and I following women jockeys. Well, he backed Michelle Tuesday, and no marks for guessing who didn't, who jumped off the horse-powered bandwagon. It, it's going to hurt for a long time. OK, end of diversion. No diversions on our roads, no detour signs. Heard an interview with the More Productivity from Workers for Less Pay Con Mission Supremo the other morning calling for more spending on infrastructure. See, as the price of resources plummets, they've discovered there is a role for government. Hand all those taxes the resource industry campaigned to ensure it didn't pay to the great corporates who don't pay it. And he kept calling for more spending on roads. The term unconstructed roads coming out of his mouth several times and I thought but one of our biggest urban problems is not unconstructing but constructing at the expense of rational planning certain unnamed lobbies determining what infrastructure we require which seems to coincide with the certain unnamed lobbies bottom line interests Sorry, there I go again. If these people, these important men in suit boardrooms, didn't have the community interest at heart, surely governments wouldn't spend their lives talking to them, carrying out their demands. Expressed succinctly and intelligently by this Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin Lackey, uh, sorry, objective independent scribe Tom Selling It Smelling It. Apparently the son of chain smoking also knows what's good for us, no longer filthy rich John Selling It Smelling It. Which might explain something, because Tom spent a whole page solving the problem of traffic congestion. When planning a freeway, however many lanes you think you need, add at least one. Simple, really. Why didn't we think of that, listener? It takes a great mind, obviously. And simple certainly sums it up. Then again, if you're a road authority controlling transport policy stacked with several floors of road engineers, it makes sense to keep creating work for yourself and those people would never realise the panacea to all our transport problems they promote will in time become the problem requiring the next panacea, would they? Those who do make it through the congestion to the airport have been hit with a new welcome to monopoly parking sign. The exorbitant parking fees up by another exorbitant 67%. Uh, but when you were privatised, we were told it was part of competition, world's best practice on the great level playing field policy. And it is. They can always drive a bit further and park at Sydney Airport although that's no cheaper. They're currently widening the privately owned road to the airport yet again. Remember, they promised we could do Daddy Nong to the airport in 36 minutes, and, and it may be possible at 3am. 
But those Vic Roads engineers and therefore the government puppets they instruct know that money would be wasted building unnecessary infrastructure like a railway line. On giving government instructions, the Chamber of Profits has shown its dedication to all of us by declaring we must raise the GST, impose it on everything except private school education, and must use that to lower company taxes so the poor who pay all that extra GST will be better off. Their caring for all of us altruism knows no bounds. Speaking of, a, speaking of, a union account manager, niece of a long-term nepotistic regime in that union, told the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission she couldn't explain how she bought loads and loads of personal items, including a, a little bit of jewellery from Tiffany's, at union expense. I would have thought the reason was obvious. And we want to thank these people for giving the Kanga Mission ammunition to fire at unions who fight for their members and don't misuse their funds. Finally, congratulations to the Turkish government for winning overwhelmingly an election many thought would be close. Although the government was so confident, it was able to announce the results, the surprise results, in evil terrorist Kurdish areas where it was thought it might poll pretty ordinarily, for instance, even before the votes were counted. It shows the 100% in those areas who oppose us are a minority. The silent majority has spoken. Hang on, maybe that's the silenced majority. Good morning. Oh, good on Kevin. <laughs> the silenced majority. I can't get over what uh, um, Black Douglas said the other day. Oh, I wouldn't mind having that man at my barbecue, the next barbecue. <laughs> so Kevin's got... Uh, uh, Fans all over the country who are interested in his spin when nobody else will say what they think he does, which is great. And you heard that on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, Kim and Marcus, who got up early to come here. He braved the rain. <laughs> um, he's just going to laugh silently. This is radio, Marcus. You've got to talk. <laughs> Uh, Kim and I took a bullet for for the show and went off to the Economic and Social Outlook Conference and uh, the first one off the cab off the rank, we've got a couple of reports just for your predilection. Uh, the first one, what's the first one? The first one is a bit from, there was a session where they all talked about Federation and the problems of Federation, which one of the problems was that the public doesn't red care tape. about it. <laughs> red tape, red yeah, tape. Red tape, no one cares. <laughs> but they were very annoyed they kept having to talk about the GST, which is only, they say, slightly related to the issue of federation, that is how the states implement the GST. But anyway, this is an interesting piece uh, from John Daly, who is the CEO of the Grattan Institute, which is one of those think tanks. Those think tanks. That people... Now, that brings us to tax reform. There's lots of levers here um, economically, uh, but as I suggested, I suspect the federal impacts will by and large be a byproduct. Now, of course, tax reform is politically very hard, and if anything, the federalism issues make it harder. Let me speak very specifically, though, about the GST, because I think we spend a lot of time waving our hands at the GST and not thinking through exactly how would this play out. Let's, for the moment, assume a 5% increase in the GST from 10% to 15%. In today's terms, that will raise you, roughly speaking, $27 billion. 
uh, unless Malcolm Turnbull wants to write an even more comprehensive suicide note uh, than John Hewson, he will um, provide a substantial compensation package to um, uh, those who are in the bottom 20% who are by and large on welfare. He will not be able to ensure that every single person in the bottom quintile is better off, but he will be able to ensure that on average they are better off and indeed that the vast majority of them are better off. And of course that's the big difference between a real life package and what was discussed by ACOS yesterday um, in which there was no compensation at all in terms of those who are on welfare benefits. That doesn't strike me as a plausible answer that any sane government would take to the electorate. And roughly speaking, they're going to need to give away about a third of what they raise to be able to say that the vast majority of people uh, in the bottom quintile um, will be um, no worse off. They're also going to need to provide tax cuts to those, if you like, in the third and fourth quintile. Um, uh, that will leave the vast majority of households in the third and fourth quintile better off. And indeed, you will get an economic payoff from that because by definition, you are reducing marginal tax rates for the groups that matter the most. Um, because for that third and fourth quintile, those are the people whose decisions about working get affected by most by the amount uh, that they get to take home after tax. And for reasons that I'll go through, that doesn't actually leave you very much about you know, four or five billion a year for the Commonwealth to spend either um, reducing corporate taxes or reducing income taxes further uh, or paying down on the budget deficit or whatever else you might want to look at. But either way, it's not a very big number. So you've got to start there. I can't see a package, and you can argue about, well, exactly how much do you want to have here, and maybe it's not quite a third, maybe it's a bit less than that that goes in the way of welfare payments, a bit less than that that goes in the way of tax cuts, but I'd suggest it's going to need to be that kind of order of magnitude to come up with a package which is not regressive, uh, a package which overall leaves the bottom fifth um, a little bit in front of where they are at the moment, and I would suggest that's going to be the price of reform here. Okay, so that brings us to the next bit. There is the minor detail, which is that at the moment the states are entitled to all of the GST, however much the Commonwealth raises, and I cannot imagine that they're going to give that away. Um, uh, I can't understand why a state, rational state government um, uh, treasurer would agree to only a, receiving a proportion, because if they know that the Commonwealth is taking... 10% this year, they will know that the Commonwealth can arbitrarily take 20% last year, and if 115 years of federation has told us one thing, it is that the Commonwealth will do that any time it is in trouble. Uh, and it will get into trouble again, indeed, arguably, its budget is, in fact, not arguably, its budget clearly is in quite a lot of trouble already, uh, and a state premier will clearly see this as being a slippery slope to the Commonwealth taking more in future. So I would imagine the rational state government treasurer will insist that any GST reform uh, leaves the state government getting uh, as much uh, as it used to, sorry, getting all of the GST. So by definition, 27 million, a billion a year will get transferred from the Commonwealth. And of course, there's an offsetting 27 billion that goes uh, to the states. Now, of course, that leaves the Commonwealth in uh, a bit of a hole. Um, why would the Commonwealth be pursuing GST reform to see its budget go backwards by that amount? And so it's necessarily going to need to reduce specific purpose payments to the states by about 22 billion so that it winds up more or less where it is. Uh, and, of course, that would leave the states uh, collectively about $5 billion in front, 
which strikes me as about the number that the states will want uh, as a payoff for going through all the political pain of this process. Um, that strikes me as a plausible package. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying that you couldn't fiddle with the numbers to leave it slightly different, but it strikes me that as you walk through the logic of the GST and its reform, that's the kind of thing that it will need to look like uh, in order for all of the various bits to add up and make some sense. It leaves the states better off. It leaves the Commonwealth with a shift in tax mix uh, towards something that is... Um, uh, hopefully going to encourage uh, working a little bit more. Uh, it leaves welfare groups um, happy, maybe, at least it's possibly uh, uh, a plausible outcome. And note one of the things that's key in this is a GST package like this does not have to be regressive. You can very easily design a package of GST increases, tax cuts and welfare increases, which leave the bottom fifth materially better off uh, than where they are at the moment. Now, um, there is a minor detail. If you are going to reduce uh, specific purpose payments by $22 billion, um, by definition, you are going to have to abandon Commonwealth payments to the states uh, either for hospitals or for schools. You can take all of the Commonwealth-specific uh, tied grants um, to the states other than schools and hospitals, and as you see, you don't even get to um, uh, $11 or $12 billion a year. Uh, if you're trying to get to 22, you are going to have to touch at least one of schools and hospitals and more than just touch it. You're really going to have to uh, essentially exit that. Now, as I said, um, whichever lobby group uh, that affects is going to scream like crazy. That's not going to make GST reform any easier, but it does strike me as a logical corollary of getting into this business. So um, where does that leave us? Well, tax reform, it's a big economic lever. Um, the federal impacts will, if anything, be a byproduct of as you kind of work through the logic of it, uh, and be fair to say it's going to be pretty tough, and it will probably necessarily imply the Commonwealth uh, exercising less control over at least one of schools or hospitals in the future. And of course, if it chooses hospitals, then the cost shifting game in hospitals will become, in health will become even bigger than it is at the moment. And then finally, we get to the ideas around sharing the costs of reform. And this strikes me as perhaps the most likely outcome uh, of federalism debates over the next uh, couple of years. Um, clearly, there is a game around increasing property taxes and reducing stamp duties. I think it'd be fair to say that it's tough to find an economist who thinks that that would be a bad idea. Indeed, it's tough to find a state government uh, official behind closed doors who thinks that that's a bad idea. But of course, the politics is very, very difficult. Uh, similarly, uh, if we talk about zoning and planning reform, and there was lots of talk about zoning and planning reform yesterday, um, it is uh, tough to find someone who thinks it will be a bad idea, but it will be uh, very politically difficult. On the other hand, you can see a world in which the Commonwealth basically puts some money on the table uh, for the states, Hilmer-like, um, in, in return for reform. And I would argue it does make the politics much easier for a number of reasons. One is... For a public, the fact that governments of different stripes sign up to something um, suggests that it's a quality reform. And secondly, the fact that governments of different stripes sign up mean that the political um, returns for opposing that at a federal level, say, or indeed at a state level, are less. And therefore, I think it's more likely it might also get coupled to the big package GST that I've described. It might be that the reward for the states getting this GST money is essentially also signing up 
to this kind of package. And so I think that there is at least a chance it might happen. Thank you. Oh, there you go. Politely clapping. <laughs> yeah, the clapping, clapping. I left the clapping because that's a good sound effect, I thought. <laughs> and then we knew. Uh, see, I told you we took a bullet for you, audience. We went there. We listened to all this stuff. And that's uh, one of the arguments about uh, the GST because GST and this conference is about agenda setting. And uh, as I said, that everything was on the table and it was all about uh, people... Uh, talking around uh, various things. It was a conference that uh, included lots of government people, lots of university people, and uh, lots of think tank people. And it was uh, on the first morning, uh, there were demonstrators out the front of the Grand Hyatt uh, uh, waiting for Mr Turnbull, who was uh, a very nonchalant, very good at appearing to be a normal person. That takes a lot of grit for a person who... Uh, uh, isn't a normal person, and uh, he's got a lot of ac- uh, acting skills, that man. And uh, he then did a speech that was basically kicking off the uh, road to the next election, right? That's what he was doing. And it was all about this is the greatest time to be in this country, all talking up, all talking up, and uh, that uh, it's all about being fair and pragmatic and pragmatic meaning that uh, it uh, uh, has no ideological baggage. But, of course, you know, that's a furphy too, isn't it? Yes, I've, I found it very interesting. You can see that these conferences are about giving advice and options to the ruling class. That man that we just heard from the Grattan Institute, John Daly, he wasn't necessarily for the GST. He actually pre- prefers a property tax, but he was just telling them how you would get it through. If you wanted to get a GST, yeah, because yeah, because it's it's the it's a notion, it's the the way of thinking, lack of principles. Yeah, well, now this one, this is Simon Cohen, and this is where I give you a warning. This is, the, we do not endorse anything that this man says. This is a classic case of a debater creating a crisis, uh, using figures to uh, p- persuade people into. It's like corralling sheep into the. Uh, into the uh, shearing shed. If anybody's ever had an experience of watching the dogs bring in the sheep into the shearing sheds. The cattle prod. Yeah, you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You heard earlier today just how hard it is to fix Australia's budget. This session is going to explain one of the reasons why that is, and it comes down to the intractability of dealing with welfare spending. Before we get to that, though, I think it's really important to have a discussion about exactly what the word sustainable means. Since other countries spend much more on their welfare systems than we do, our system, by definition, is sustainable. Now, there's two problems with this approach. The first is that it assumes implicitly that these other countries' systems are themselves sustainable. Estimates on, for example, the US social security system suggest that it's underfunded to the tune of hundreds of trillions of dollars. You can't pick up a paper in the UK without reading about the pension crisis. And a recent EU report on ageing found that half of all EU countries have already started to cut their pension systems because they can't afford them now. That is not just Greece. That is countries like Germany and France too. The alternative model here is that of Japan, with an old population, 
a dormant economy are now entering their second consecutive decade that is considered lost. But there's a second problem with that definition of sustainability, and that's if your spending needs tax increases that are impossible to pass in the Australian environment, is your spending really sustainable? It's not enough to say that other countries will pay taxes sufficient to fund this system. We cannot glibly assume that Australians will do likewise. In fact, a recent survey on attitudes towards tax by per capita found that just 3% of people thought that they personally should pay more tax. There's plenty of people out there who think that others should pay more tax to fund their services. But you won't get $50 billion, the amount of money we're talking about here, without everyone paying their share. Now, for those of us who believe in small government, like myself, this reluctance is actually a positive thing because I think it's pretty much the only thing that's holding government back from expanding spending in every area. And you can see the evidence of this reluctance very clearly. Now, for the last 41 years, revenue to GDP has existed within a fairly narrow band. Two-thirds are pretty close to the average at 23.8%. But in that 41-year period, not a single budget was more than 10% outside that average. Now, during that period of time, every single government that was in power attempted tax reform. Fraser, with his indexation of income tax, Hawke had a tax summit, Howard and Costello with a GST, personal income taxes, and, of course, the recent Gillard and Rudd government's Henry Tax Review. And every one of those governments, other than John Howard's, was hurting pretty bad for revenue for a lot of the time they were in power. Most of them were running deficits. But none of them could shift this tax-to-GDP ratio outside 2.5% of GDP of the average. Now, what this shows to me is that there is, in fact, no evidence that Australians are willing to cop significant tax rises to fund the status quo. As a consequence, it is irrelevant that the United Kingdom spends 2.7% of GDP more on pensions than we do because their tax-to-GDP ratio is 9% higher, which cannot happen here. And it is even more irrelevant that Sweden spends 4.7% of GDP higher, because their tax-to-GDP ratio is 18% higher. Unless and until you can convince me that Australia will pay more tax than ever before in its history, you can't say that the system is sustainable. So my definition of sustainable, and the one that I'm going to work off on this presentation, is that the spending has to fit within the existing tax envelope, plus or minus 2.5% of GDP. That brings us to ask the question, does the welfare system fit within this space? Well, one thing that is clear is that welfare has come to dominate the budget. If you go back to 1971, health, welfare and education constituted just 25% of state and federal budgets. At the moment, it's now 60%. There has been a significant increase in this recurrent expenditure. Now, in the short term, there are sustainability issues, I think, with family tax benefits and finding a way to fund the NDIS, which will start big and get bigger. 
But in the longer term, there is really only one issue for sustainability of the welfare system, and that is the age pension. And in my mind, pension reform is in fact inevitable for two reasons. Firstly, the cost increases are, or very soon will be, unsustainable. And equally importantly, since we are talking about fairness and individual responsibility, the current means test for the pension is unfair. And that fairness is a key theme for today's conference. So why is the pension unsustainable? Well, in 2009, the Harmer Review found, as many other reviews have, that the purpose of the pension was to support people who could not support themselves in retirement. Now, pensioners themselves rather vehemently disagree with that characterisation, suggesting the pension was an entitlement for working hard and paying taxes. But in practice, the pension is in fact quasi-universal. Four out of every five people of retirement age receive a pension. It is the largest single federal government payment with more than 2.4 million pensioners receiving more than $44 billion a year. This is a figure the budget predicts will exceed $50 billion a year before the end of the forward estimates. That is a 35% increase in real terms since 2007-2008, i.e. the height of the mining boom. One of the things that has been driving this increase, of course, is the practice of benchmarking the pension against wages. And what we've seen is that in real terms, both on a per capita and a per worker basis, there's been a massive increase in the value of the pension. Between 1971 and 2011, the cost of the pension as a percentage of average wages has doubled. That is to say that pensioners are securing more of the gains not merely their share. This percentage will increase by another 50% over the next 40 years. Is each generation paying for themselves? My research says no. What they are in fact doing is taking more from the next generation than they were willing to give to the generation before them. Now this is a significant problem, but the population is ageing. There are four and a half workers funding each retiree at the moment. Over the last 30 years, that's fallen from seven workers for each retiree. But by 2055, that proportion falls to just 2.7 people working and paying taxes to support people in retirement. People who will be in retirement for decades and decades. Now, there's a wild card here. The Productivity Commission predicts that by 2060, the majority of voters will be over the age of 50, suggesting that there'll be a significant political incentive to direct more funds towards ageing. So if we go back to my test on sustainability for the pension, the intergenerational report, with its fairly conservative estimates, suggests that increases in pension and health costs will be about 3.6% of GDP, already outside my 2.5% bound. But with those political economy effects, you could easily see that being 5% of GDP, more than twice the limits that we set on sustainability. But the issue is not just sustainability, it's also fairness. One of the big factors that has driven this increase in cost is that the current pension means test is unfair to people who do not own their home. And those are the people 
typically who have the least and are in most need of support from the government. The pension means test currently excludes the family home, but this is where pensioners have their wealth. Three quarters of pensioners have 70% of their wealth or more in their home. Couple pensioners, on average, have more than $500,000 of home equity. Single pensioners have more than $400,000. Full rate homeowners, that is people who receive the full rate of the pension, have nine times the net worth of non-homeowners who receive the same pension rate. These people have very significant differences in their ability to support themselves and to boost their own living standards. Now, the advantages of home ownership have led to a massive overinvestment in housing amongst people of retirement age. We estimated that pensioners hold between $700 and $750 billion in total in home equity. Now, this investment in the home should result in a significant difference in pension payments, but at the moment it does not. The richest pensioners, those with $1.75 million in net worth, still receive, on average, more than $10,000 a year from the federal government. Now, this, again, is a concerning feature, but perhaps more concerning is that those pensioners are not using this wealth to support themselves in retirement. There's a reluctance to downsize and the reverse mortgage market is chronically underdeveloped. Just 1% of retirees have a reverse mortgage. Well, I have three steps, interlocking steps, that will significantly change the game in the welfare space. The first is to include the family home in the pension assets test, simply because we must acknowledge that the bulk of pensioner assets are held in the home. The means test has to reflect the true net worth, that is, the ability of people to support themselves in retirement. What is happening at the moment is that the poorest pensioners and the people who do not own their home and are paying taxes are in fact transferring income to middle and upper class landowning families. This is not about punishing pensioners for owning their home. It is simply reflecting the ability that people have to support themselves and figuring out who needs government support the most. That's a key principle of our welfare system. But this has to be linked with a second reform. That is helping pensioners release some of that equity and get a higher living standard. We need to boost the take-up of reverse mortgages by creating a government-backed, government-insured reverse mortgage product. But our model, our government reverse mortgage, would have low rates, low fees, but very importantly, must be taken as an annuity product, a regular stream of income to supplement or replace the pension. Because this is backed by government, there's a guaranteed return, suggesting that we could open it up to the $5 trillion in funding that's coming into superannuation over the next 30 years. And that government guarantee ensures that pensioners cannot lose their homes to dodgy loans. Now, the pension system and indeed the welfare system as a whole may not be unsustainable at this exact point, and it's certainly not yet a catastrophe. But we do only have a small window to implement meaningful reform before we see a massive influx of the boomers going into retirement. Over the next decade, we can introduce reform in stages with compensation. 
But 25 years of budget deficits, what we are looking at, will remove that flexibility very quickly. Pensioners cannot continue to rely on government to increase their incomes forever. These sustainability issues and fairness issues should be addressed. The alternative is convincing a generation that has been largely locked out of the housing market who are facing significantly lower economic growth over their future, lower incomes and a much longer working life that they should pay higher taxes to support the generation who brought all of this about. Thank you. Well, there you go. You heard what it first. What a load of rubbish. <laughs> isn't, isn't that a cra- crazy eh? And this is the reinvention of sustainability and fairness, neoliberal style. Yeah, so we should kick out my, you know, 90-something veteran grandfather from his house and stick me in it. That's fairness. Because he's just bloody selfish. He is. He yes. is. He's bloody selfish. <laughs> anyway, we've got to get out of here. This is uh, Annie signing off. And Kim. And Marcus, thanks, listeners. Yeah, thanks, listeners. And uh, we'll go out with uh, Tomorrow Begins Today by the Asian Dub Coalition. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.